Hello there. Welcome to Dr. Doom's Dungeons and Dragon Balls, episode number two. Today, I am joined by Wayne. What's up, man? Not a whole lot. What about you? Oh, not too much. Today, we're going to be talking about um, RPGs, world building, fun stuff. Kind of an important part of, of most RPG worlds, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, can't really have a world without the world building. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so Wayne, what is your history RPGs? Uh, that's a good question. Like, I think historically the first RPG I really played is probably Diablo. And that one, like, the world is not super, super fleshed out in it, but, like, the the town and the region's problems are, are really well-defined. And sure. for for it being as simple as it is, you know, Diablo was phenomenal. Um, yeah. And I know Diablo 2 and maybe, to some extent, 3 really fleshed out the world for them. That's but, what I was. I was to say two is really where yeah you know, world building really starts. Yeah, like they have some pieces in in the lore in the books that you encounter in Diablo one, but it really isn't until Diablo two that you experience the world more than the town of Tristram. And like I think past that, games like Final Fantasy seven, um. I didn't really play 8 or 9 when they came out, and then Final Fantasy X. Those were my big RPG games before getting into, like, Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah. And then, like, past that, you know, the explosion of open-world stuff, um, all of the Elder Scrolls games, but particularly Morrowind was my first entry in there. And that world is nuts, and I still love the game world, and I still hate the gameplay. <laughs> I remember playing that game with you a lot. <laughs> I remember when it came out, and we'd always go to um, our friend's house, and you would constantly bring the Xbox, and we would just play the hell out of that game. And I'm pretty sure you were the only one of our friends uh, are like direct small knit friends group that owned an Xbox. <laughs> I think that's right. Yeah, um, everyone else was, was firmly one PlayStation. Other, but we didn't really become close with him till later. Yeah. Yeah, that's who I, I thought you were thinking of at first because I know he was really into the game. Yes. But yeah, like, Morrowind is a phenomenal world, but the Elder Scrolls had like two massive games before that to build that world as well. And you know, it, it's like every game takes place in its own province, but you still have the greater world with its unique things happening. Yeah. And I played a little bit of Elder Scrolls Online. I know they're trying to sort of like make it the whole world. I don't know how much they've really added to that, but like, I'm just not much of an MMO guy. 
neither am I. Um, I I feel you on that one. I know that they keep adding more. Uh, there's a new expansion. My PS5 keeps telling me about it. So um, they they just keep building out more. Uh, they have a. I think the latest one is Blackmore. Um, so there's just they're constantly building that world out um and i'm sure all of that is going to be incorporated into like elder scrolls 6 when and if it happens um i know it comes like a whole era before the most of the games i think all of the the previous games um it's set in the second era as opposed to the the third or fourth with the recent ones right so that they can get away with uh, a lot of just chaos for the sake of chaos <laughs> yeah you know, so <clears throat> you know i i really had to think about it but um my start in rpgs i actually think came with uh i w- i was gonna say it was ff9 but um FF9 actually came a little later in my life. Um, Final Fantasy IX for the uninformed. <laughs> and um, I'd have to say my first foray into like real RPGs, uh, it was still a video game. It would have to be Digimon World. The original Digimon World. Oh, you know what? Does Pokemon count as an RPG? Yeah, Pokemon counts. Okay, definitely. that might have been my first. <laughs> Pokemon definitely counts. Um, and I, I did play... You know, maybe Pokemon was. Come to think of it. I did get Red and Blue when they first came out. So maybe Pokemon was my first. You know? I was like six i barely remember (laughs) yeah we're of a certain age where like for most of us pokemon dominates a lot of that childhood oh for sure for sure we're like right at the age i mean we were we were 90s babies we were all born all of our friend group was born in the late 80s uh and we all grew up in the prime of the 90s (laughs) Like most of the late, late 80s. (laughs) Well, yeah, late, late 80s. I would say anywhere. I mean, some people like my wife was born in 86. I was born in 89. Most of us were born in between that period. (laughs) Yeah. Between 86 and 89. And um, there are a few of us who are a little younger uh in the in the very early 90s like 90 91 um but most of us remember like 94 to 99 and that was like prime peak childhood for us because that was when we were like five to ten years old yeah the the formative years of our our video gaming slash rpg experiences for sure um i actually didn't even Oh, go ahead. Yeah, bef- before playing Pokemon and stuff on Game Boy and that, it was just like all platformers. It was all Mario or Sonic. Oh, That's 100%. really all I played. 
hundred percent. Um, yeah, I think, I think for me, it was also mostly Mario and Sonic, um, because I think I, I loved Crash Bandicoot, but that came a little bit after Pokemon. I think that was the next year. I think Pokemon was 96 and then, or maybe 95, but yellow was my first one. So maybe it was 96 and then 97 was when Crash Bandicoot came. I thought Crash came out earlier than that, but that it might have been ninety six, but it was the very end of ninety six. Yeah, I it I know that I know that they really pushed a lot of the PlayStation's capabilities with Crash. Yes, which is yeah. still nuts to think about, like in that early of a game. It kind of is because if you look at the um the insane trilogy those games hold up and like they only changed the graphics the the gameplay and the style is so true to the original form that they they didn't they didn't change any of the gameplay and those games still hold up so to think they were doing that back on the OG PlayStation. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's the same sort of thing with like the Final Fantasies. Especially when you get to Final Fantasy 9, the graphics are all pretty good. Like there's nothing really to complain about there. 9 like... was my first Final Fantasy and it was really probably the first RPG that I truly like got immersed in. Pokemon it was a here and there kind of thing. Everybody was playing it. It was a time and place. But I wasn't like super sucked in. Uh, Digimon World, I was kind of sucked in. But I was more interested in like just its connection to the the anime. Because I was a huge Digimon anime fan. Um, and that was super early in my video game experience. But I... FF9, I actually was late to the game on that. I don't think I played that till I was in junior high. Um, and I just got totally sucked in. And I skipped 7, the one everybody talks about and says is the greatest thing since sliced bread. I completely skipped over it. And I eventually went back, and it just never grabbed me the way 9 did. And, uh, I mean, the remake did... But I even feel like the gameplay just wasn't as refined in seven as nine. I mean, obviously that's two months later. There's yeah. they're, you know, gonna I feel like nine was really the last one before they kind of started changing the formula. Like ten was a little different. And I kind of hate the protagonist of ten. <laughs> I think that's a a definite theme with that game like the story and the world are interesting and unique and you could have the same game without titus and it would be way better you can ignore him as a person yes oh yes i absolutely agree i think that's why things like 10-2 and uh 10-2 part 2 happened you know because they moved away from Titus and they explored some of the other characters 
from that world. I know I had friends who were obsessed with Ten Two, and I thought just the gameplay was so bad that I couldn't do it. Um, <laughs> but I appreciate continuing the story because everybody wants to know what happens afterwards. I, I'm yeah. still pretty happy with the ending of Ten. I don't know. I, so I think, I think in hindsight, like Titus disappearing is is great. Sorry, spoilers, but if you haven't if you haven't <laughs> or are planning to play ten, it's been how freaking long, man. Oh, that's all right. Our our first episode had spoilers <laughs> for uh Tekken Seven. Tekken Seven's been out for like five years. <laughs> so you know even though it's the latest game in the franchise, uh, I think I think it's okay. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously, uh, if you're not a fan of the protagonist, them disappearing is going to be something you can appreciate. <laughs> um, and then, uh, early, early in my high school career, I got introduced to tabletop RPGs. And I have been um, all, all over the place. A lot of my experiences are D20-based, but I have had experiences with um, other systems. I specifically really like Exalted, which is a die pool system, but I like some of how the combat functions work in that. Um, and I like how you can get really creative and that creativity then translates into game mechanics and can benefit or possibly detriment you um, when getting creative. I have a similar experience with, um, with RPGs, got into it about the same time. Um, I, I was first told about D and D as more of more than like a cartoons referencing it reverently um, when a friend was playing when I was in eighth grade, but I didn't play with them until ninth when they got me to join up in someone else's campaign that fell through within like two weeks, and then he ran. See, that's um, funny because that's kind of the same thing that happened with me. And it's possible this friend may have been the same person. <laughs> but yeah, uh, this was this was Lance. Oh yeah, so it was the same friend. Okay. He also introduced me to D and D. So I, I know uh, I I've played mostly three three five because when we started playing. I think 3.5 had just come out and none of us were paying any attention in early high school to what the versions were. So like every and, once in a while you just have these. had just started. Um, we started high school in what? 2003, 3.5 came out in 2001. So yeah, it, it had been out for a couple of years, but it was still in its infancy for sure. Yeah. And I think us being uh, baby players at the time, like if someone brought in a book, we weren't really paying attention. I think that's probably true, especially with um, mechanics and all that. Plus, I feel like anything before three 
was really hard to find by the time you got to like 2001. Yeah. I mean, we were just playing like whatever we were playing. That's, yeah. Yeah. You know, being new to it, I don't think like we were going to explore the landscape. But um, I think I've played all the D&D versions except for uh, and I will put a caveat on that. I've played two through Baldur's Gate. So, like, I haven't really played two. But I, I've played with its mechanics. So I haven't played OG D&D or AD&D. I have played two, which really, I guess, AD&D and two are hard to differentiate. Um, because back then they weren't really calling it two. Uh but I played like the very late where they started kind of talking about it being version two. Uh, I played those pieces. Um, I've played a few things from there and I've incorporated those into campaigns that use three and three, five. Um, so I've kind of experienced it both through the system on its own and adapting the system into other systems. Yeah. Um, I haven't played the original, but I feel like that's really hard to get a hold of anyway. Um, and I feel like not many people, unless you were there and it's a time and place thing, uh, have played. Uh, I did play four. I do not like four. <laughs> a lot of people will swear up and down by four because it kind of, uh, categorized things better for some people and they liked that. But I felt like that kind of became limiting because if you're throwing something into a category, that means the only way to get that thing is by getting stuck with that entire category. <laughs> yeah. And it was harder to kind of pick and choose where things like a feat system, you can, you have much more customization, but there's a lot of crunch built into that. And I feel like people get overwhelmed by crunch and i feel like that was kind of three fives uh detriment yeah that that was my wife's biggest problem was understanding the crunch of here's a skill system a feat system here are all your saving throws and like having 40 skills and having the synergies between skills and yeah it becomes just a big number game so um, as a longtime DM, I sort of have a confession to make here. Um, I have been doing this for a long time, uh, pretty much since I found out about D&D. I have been kind of trying to build my own campaigns and stuff. And I've built one very big world you're familiar with, you've played in. Yep. Um, and uh, more than once. Uh, we've ran a couple of different campaigns uh, through this world. And I, I to this all that day, a universe at that point. <laughs> it, well, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a universe. Absolutely. Um, there is definitely plenty of uh, sci-fi and hero's journey sci-fi um, type of inspiration on top of fantasy and inspiration for this world that's that's definitely true um so my deep dirty dm secret is 
I don't really get hit dice. Like, I understand what hit dice are. I don't understand the hit dice mechanic of, like, spending hit dice or how you alter hit dice to affect creatures you've created. Um, I, I never really understood how that system worked. Yeah, I... I've always understood it the three five way of it's just effectively like your level. It's how many times you've leveled up and got another dice of health. See, um, and that's what I was gonna say. I always got like levels. Yeah. And like like negative levels totally make sense to me. Level adjustments make sense. I get it. You're just trying to make an even playing field so you're essentially holding someone back till the rest of the party catches up and that's giving them negative levels basically yeah they're effectively level zero for you know three or four levels until everyone else has caught up and then they get to be level one where they're level one to be equal to their level four or whatever yeah i i do understand the weirdness of like hit dice as a mechanic to do certain things because I guess, yeah, monsters don't really have levels. This is true, but I've always like when I have, usually I just pull monsters, like something I like, I'll just pull it directly and if I need to modify it slightly I will, but for the most part I just pull it um, and then if I really want like some sort of titular villain or something like that I just make it a character. I yeah. just make it as if I'm making a character. So I've never created monsters of creating a monster to be a monster. I've always created monsters to be an active character. And I'll just use the template for that specific kind of race or whatever. You know, I want it to be a dragon. There's plenty of stuff to create a dragon playable character out there. Uh in in the world so like i'll just take one of those templates and use that yeah and i think a lot of the info even if they've given us the hit dice on on a monster usually that just gives you a range for health like i know my party does a ton of damage i'm gonna give it more health so it can at least hurt them somewhat before it gets killed And I've always understood that. Like I said, I understand what hit dice are. I just never understood, like, like I was reading something today that 3-5, you can spend hit dice and use them outside of battle to heal. I don't really understand, like, how that would work or what that means. And it doesn't, nothing ever tells you. Like, everyone talks about, oh, you can do this. But, like, what mechanically does that mean in the game so you're spending those so what's the detriment what's the cost what are you doing to yourself are you essentially losing health points or setting them aside is it damage you're setting i don't understand how like that mechanic works (laughs) if i had to guess because it's a bit more defined uh in five that well, like, this was specifically about five that I was reading this, and it oh, you said you said really, three five. Did I? Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm sorry. That was that was a slip of the tongue. Um, no, it was it was five. 
but it, it didn't really explain to me um what what the cost of that was like what how that mechanic would work it just said you can do it <laughs> okay i could do that but how does that like mechanically work? <laughs> yeah like how does it come out in the narrative of the game right right yeah. what does it mean for my character when they're spending those hit dice what are they losing what are they gaining what happened? I've always just kind of thought, since like you're usually doing this during short rest, that you can think mm-hmm. of, and and this has been other friends have complained relentlessly that like the the hit point system doesn't make sense because you can't just constantly get hit by a sword because you're a higher level and and bleed more. You don't just get more blood. Um. But I feel like that actually comes into things like okay, your con rate. So actually, yeah. what, what that translates into is it takes more hits to even cut you in the first place. Yeah. So, Your skin is tougher. And that always made sense to me as far as how the game works. I'm like, oh, yeah, you're, you're training. Like, the, all, of, all of this gaining levels, it's essentially training. If you're a bodybuilder and you're training, you're beefing up, meaning it's harder to hurt you. Meaning that's how that translates into hit points. I take one whack at you. Oh, it doesn't do anything. I had to whack you several times now, whereas before I could whack you once and it actually hurt you. <laughs> and like the the Buddhist monks in in China that like balance themselves on points of a spear or like bend a spear with their neck. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, because that's not breaking their skin. So if you're just tossing a spear at them with a normal amount of force, it's just going to bounce right off because their skin is used to that type of pressure and force being put onto it. Yeah, so with with that mechanic, I sort of feel it's like you're, you're spending hit dice in a proportional way to say that, like, I've taken so many hits and, you know, that's going to bruise the next day. So I'm I'm taking some time to rest and not push it any further. I'm going to stretch out a little bit. I'm going to lay down. I mean, wh- whatever like, you can come up with in rest. about in the throes of battle. Like, because oh. that's, that's what it's talking about. It's saying, because the mechanic is, you can, in the throes of battle, choose to spend... Hit the, or, or basically, not really spend, but reserve hit dice to use later on your rest. What does that ultimately mean? Does that mean that life is basically like, like you're chunking out the life and setting it to the side so it's unaffected by any damage you take? And like that life is just like reserved sitting over here? It never really tells me what that means. It tells me I can do it, but like, how do I mechanically do it? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Because I don't remember being able to use hit dice in combat to do anything well, in particular. I guess you're not actually using them. I guess you're, like, choosing to serve them. And you have to, like, call it out. From from my understanding, and that's kind of my point, like, it's yeah. not very clear how this mechanic works. I just know it exists because I've read it in a couple of different places as an option. And I'm like... I don't really get how that works. <laughs> yeah, my... See, 
See, I, I thought when you told me you had a, a big reveal of something as a DM, I thought it was going to be something like some some naughty world building thing. <laughs> I I have a big confession in my world building is that like oh, in my earlier games, because I was a wee babby high schooler or early college student, of I I built out stories that really shouldn't have been based around the NPCs you have. And and so like the main character is the NPC. And I really regret those. Like, I mean, the first campaign I ran really sucked. Um, but that was because we were also learning about making classes and, and prestige classes and stuff at the time, and it just got out of hand. Yes. Um, I I am totally a sucker for doing that because uh, I found I kind of approach my world building more as a writer than I do as a, like, I'm just trying to give people opportunities to tell their stories which is what a good dm should be doing and so i totally have that same problem where uh my npcs drive the story more than the pcs do yeah and like i try to give a lot of agency within that but but it's, still, it's it's hard to approach it, especially like when you're interested in, I have this idea, I want things to go away. You're approaching it like a writer would when they're writing a book. Yeah. And they create this idea of this character that lives in this world. And it's hard to create a world without having a focal point. So having a character that lives in really helps to... Um, help you define what the world's going to be when you're building a world. And that's why writers do that. They usually make their characters first, then design their world around what they want to happen to their character. Yeah. Um, but it's super... That's a slippery slope, because then you end up with railroading. <laughs> and I am super afraid of, like, railroading or like the dm becoming the most important character <laughs> yeah i i try not to do that but it's hard, though. yeah I, I think it also is a function of the players you have because i know people have said like whatever your players do that's where the story happens so like yeah it could be like this is going to happen either way and i'm going to make you react to it because Something will eventually happen in the world, but yeah, it's it's my big problem early DM that I've tried to break out of making later stuff. Uh, I want it to be less about the NPCs that follow you around slash direct you around. I want to give you NPCs if you need them, like when it was just you and Jen in the one game I ran. Yeah, but, yeah, it's it's tricky. That that's my my big downfall. I definitely have the same problem. <laughs> I mean, that's that's for sure. Uh, the biggest issue I have is how do I not railroad? How do I not make <clears throat> the NPCs more important than these playable characters? How do I um, pull back and create just a 
blank faced opportunity as opposed to um being the whole reason for this world to exist. <laughs> yeah. Um I definitely struggle with that as well. I totally get what you So so we both kind of admitted that we we come at the campaign like writers, but how did how did you come up with your world? Um it was something I wanted to see. So here's the thing. I have lots of influences and lots of things that I really like. Um, at the time, I had just really, and, and this is kind of in general a dirty nerd confession I have to make here. <laughs> I At this time, I was already like a college student, pretty much an adult. And I was just learning and getting interested in Dune. <laughs> so, yes, I didn't learn about Dune till late in life. And that definitely played a big influence. There were certain aspects of Dune that I was very interested in. And I wouldn't say my world is deeply rooted in Dune. Um, I would say Dune influenced it on a world that you had made in a previous campaign definitely and a lot of the uh nerd culture things i'm super into uh, had really influenced what i wanted to see in this world uh, things like star wars played a pretty decent influence and actually a main player in this world um not like character player but like a main mover and shaker in this world and kind of like what drive one of the things that drives the narrative of this world um the kind of character inspiration for them came from of all places mortal Kombat. <laughs> so um there's sort of this this big uh, dragon man type of character, and it was entirely inspired by a Mortal Kombat character uh, that uh, was introduced in Deception. And I was super into like the the style and the approach to that character, but like my character's personality is entirely different. It's an entirely different like. But definitely that character's presence and style influenced this character. Yeah. So. Yeah, my... So, I have a feeling that I'm going to now spill secrets about that, that game that influenced yours. Oh, um, yay! But I think you spilled most of those secrets to me already. So I, I would have hoped. Yeah, it's been forever. Not going to be too shocked. <laughs> but like, I think the obvious thing is like my my inspiration for a lot of those things were what can I get away with mechanically, and I just sort of accidentally stepped on a couple of spells that I thought were sinister in a way. And effectively let you create clones of yourself that would awaken when you die. 
It's the main one. That's it's, funny because you Star Wars before Star Wars Star Wars. <laughs> but like that was the inspiration behind basically my Sephiroth that you were going to encounter slash encountered. Like, yes. Like straight up, he was Sephiroth. I'm not going to deny that. Well, I think that uh, he sort of had that flair to him. <laughs> he he was sure. He he was Dragon Sephiroth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He definitely had that flair. That's for sure. But um, that that I think was the inspiration to make the world. But the first thing I think I did from there is I need to understand what the state of the rest of the world is. And and I always start with maps for that. Like <laughs> I need to visually see my world and plot out where would be good places for kingdoms to exist, for for republics, for things like that. And I I did a lot of that. Um, dirty little secret. I actually did it later. I did it uh, post game. Uh, I actually did it before my second campaign that I ran in the world. So, like, I had already just started. Just was making places and areas up on the fly. And then really was like, well, I kind of need to map this out because I had I had a specific mechanic that existed in the world before but was specifically going to be implemented and discovered in this campaign. And so I'm like, I kind of need to map this out to see how this is going. Um, so it's funny because I've kind of come from both ends where about the world before something starts, and then I have also done it completely on the fly. I'm like, yeah, locations are arbitrary. I, I've, never not had a map for the game and almost always i have like a, a map for the world a map for a region and then city maps which i'm absolutely admitting is overkill like my town maps were garbage well that's true but i think the point of them was to give us a rough idea of um general reference point like where i am compared to where my friend is and how far away they are and how long it'd take me to run over to them to tell them of something that's happening and yeah. i feel like that was kind of more of the purpose of those maps like for we could uh, the like the small town maps and stuff the idea yeah. was more where do we need to go how far away from someone else will we and what are basic surrounding layout is in case we get say backed into a corner yeah for what for, a lot of that, for a lot of that for me to put it all out there too was to also give you a sense of like how how big is this town or city what services can you expect and i really went overboard color coding everything but that was kind of nice as far as like we could easily figure out what's what because all we had to do was look for a certain yeah where we didn't need to read all the signs we didn't need to uh you know oh i'm i'm trying to look for the one that says store 
No, store is red. Okay, look for a red outline. Oh, wow, there it is. Super quick. Yeah. Uh, I, I think with the later game that I ran in Savage Worlds, I did it more in a, a sense that I liked, where it's like, if there's a big, big thing, here it is on the map. But otherwise, here are the districts generally in a city. Yeah. Yeah, I never got real deep into full city layouts. Um, I would, like, if if I felt there needed to be reference for like, how far away you are from something, or is it going to matter if I travel from here to there, how long is that going to take? Is that I would do. Um, I did more larger world mapping, like regional world mapping. Um, and I feel like some of it I would do on the that day uh, for that first campaign. That was definitely the case. For the second campaign, I had started mapping the whole world because there was uh, there was going to it never really took off the way I wanted it to but there was going to be a twist um, that of, would affect regions like, like the twist wouldn't change the landscape of the, but it would change the way you looked at the world like you'd realize you're in a place you didn't realize you were in yeah, and I, I I don't want to. I'm burying the lead a little bit because I don't want to put it out there because it's possible this may actually become a thing later, and I may end up trying to revive the idea of uh, this specific campaign idea. I haven't gotten there yet, but we'll we'll see if it ever happens. <laughs> yeah, I probably wouldn't run in my game again, but I'd be so I'd be happy to spill all the all the little tidbits there, but like. I, I think for me, being able to to have those maps and and know exactly where stuff is and distances was really helpful to plan out not the like big story, but sort of the the chapters of each story. Like, here's yeah. where I want you to end up. We have this much space in between, and if we're traveling for two months, you can't just walk for two months. Something has to happen. So I, right. I sort of know what small stories to sprinkle in in between to give side quests and things. Absolutely. And I am going to give a huge unsolicited plug here because this is something that um, Matt Coville, uh, YouTube content creator and uh longtime dm and company runner of dmmc is talks about this all the time he always talks about how and and i would definitely recommend checking out his stuff um at matt at matt coville at youtube um and he does a running the campaign series uh, for new and starting DMs, and um, and and also you know veteran DMs who just kind of want to see a different perspective on it. Yeah. Um, and he constantly is talking about, um, you know, being able to 
have maps and lay out where things are allows you to figure out where the best place to put an encounter might be or what what kind of opportunities you have and you know if your encounter takes place at all you're going to have totally different opportunities than it taking place in the middle of a desert you know yeah uh whereas in a hallway there are certain advantage points that you may not get in an open desert but in an open desert you have other opportunities because you can come at it from more angles and more options. However, line of sight is more open and it's definitely going to matter for ranged characters. I, I think that was the like big story beat in my campaign when, when the Northern capital got taken. That was one of the things you did really well using the city to your advantage to get up on the airship. Right. I feel like that is a great thing to have. So when you do have maps like and you do have you create opportunities like that where you can use terrain to your advantage and to your specific character's abilities. I know at that time I had a rogue character kind of um had a little more range opportunity than a lot of the other characters. One of his main weapons was a crossbow. So, like, I could essentially run and gun and take advantage of higher areas and work as, like, a sniper or having the high ground. And then that would also allow me to make my way to, yeah, some like an airship that may be at a higher plane than most things. Yeah, so I- that, that's one of the advantages to having a lot of this mapped out. So... Um, I don't necessarily know that it's overkill um, when you have it down to like the smallest level because there are opportunities. Like you said, uh, having that mapped created an opportunity for my character to be able to know and use the terrain. Otherwise, it would all be theater of the mind and your idea of how the city's built might be entirely different than mine. Yeah. There, there definitely been times where I've run into that where like uh, a DM is giving a visual of like a puzzle, but it's hard for me to take their words and turn it into exactly what the mechanic is that I can interact with. Whereas if I had saw a picture, I could be like, all right, well, about this, 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 and I can point to aspects of it to to try. So in that way, like it's sort of my more visual thinking coming out and making the maps so it's the visual process for me yes oh uh also i'm I'm going to correct myself a little bit uh matt coville at mcdm um that's that's the name of his company mcdm um anyway so yeah i mean so I feel like overkill is not really overkill in that case. <laughs> yeah. So I actually uh I give you I give you props on it. It it was one of those things where like not every player I think wanted the same amount of detail. And and so some people interact less as time goes on bothering with the maps and stuff. Um, 
but I don't know, that was probably just me making like down to villages and stuff sometimes. It was just maybe. Well, maybe I mean, if that's where working. a whole because you would have whole sections of a campaign, like several days worth of a campaign set in just this small little encampment or this small little village. So if it's important to the players day by day surroundings, I feel like that creates opportunity within the campaign. Um, I can think of one time where we were in an encampment and there was a, it was like a military encampment. It was small, but there was a general that um, we were trying to deal with and knowing where he was and which tent was his uh, sort of became a benefit as we tried to figure out how to deal with him. Yeah. So even having something small like an encampment or a small little, you know, shantytown uh, mapped out if a whole you know if a whole play session worth of the campaign is going to take place there that is fairly important yeah and so i wouldn't i wouldn't count yourself out and say oh that was overkill it was the smallest little you know hole in the wall shantytown it's like yeah but how long did we spend there <laughs> Yeah, I guess that's fair. Like, I'm, you know, if we're just passing through and we're going to be there for like a minute, <laughs> that would be different. But when we had spent two entire play sessions in this small little town, there are going to be things that happen. Like, you can't go two play sessions with counter. <laughs> yeah. So having a map to create opportunities within that encounter, I feel are important. Yeah, I think especially for so one of our other friends ran a game that is was centered around basically just a city and its outskirts. And the maps there, the maps of the individual places, not just the city as a whole, but like the districts and sometimes even the like super fine level if you need to understand how the sewer system works to get away. Right. That is all really... Or, or the, the structure of this building. How many... How is it built? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I remember one campaign that you ran at my place. Um, I attempted to assassinate this dragon character and you didn't have a map and it seemed like this like in my in my theater this whole event happened like on like a terrace or a uh, overlook built into like uh, an estate and so that sort of changed how i approach that moment um yeah. 
And, and, and I never really know, is that really where, is that really the kind of location this took place in? Because it was never really defined. And I feel like have, if I would have known one way or another, I probably could have taken more advantage of where I was and my surroundings. Yeah, if I'm remembering back to that, uh, I had it taking place more or less in like his office, but there would have been a balcony because I know you had to right. escape. That's what I imagined it was because yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure I was like on the roof or like climbing the side of the building and got to this balcony. And I thought that's where the encounter took place because I basically waited for him to come on the balcony. And uh, I think... In retrospect, I would have maybe not climbed all the way up and hung from the side to have a better chance of, um, you know, taking them by surprise. Yeah. Yeah, I remember the big thing, the big problem being that they had, I think, blind sense where they could smell you out. And And that seems right. I mean, I definitely was shocked to have been found and and i for sure barely barely survived that encounter which actually led to a really uh cool part of the campaign where i got separated from the rest of the group and my process through healing uh was an interesting one-on-one adventure um and i i remember that and then and then that sort of fizzled out right after we had finished that one. It never all came back together. Yeah, that that was shortly before the campaign died. Yes. Yes. That was like right as it died. I think because I probably was the one who The one who was? Right. I feel like I was the one who really helped together. I feel like um, I am definitely a enthusiastic player. I'm like, let's play. I want to play. Let's do this D&D. And like, so everybody, I like kind of dragged everyone else kicking and screaming to play. Maybe to some extent. Um, we We have some friends that get super into their character when they make them, and that lasts about like five, ten sessions. Yeah, until until they until they realize the mechanics and the rate at which a character levels will ultimately stonewall you, and you'll end up bored from. Yeah, Um, we also had friends who who would come and go, and that was. Also, also at the time when we had a friend who moved like three hours away and would still come back once a month, so I would run his sessions. Yeah. So I, I think it was just a ton of things happening all at once there that that yeah. sort of nuked the the piece of the story. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, DMs, if you're listening... Don't don't split the party. Don't make more work for yourself. Well, I don't know. I feel like it it work if you you you'd have to be strategic and it have to be very well pre planned. Yeah, 
if if you can do separate sessions then that that can help don't do it the way i did where you're trying to run both at the same time in in the same day in the same session for sure i feel like that would be the hardest where a lot of fun dm voice or fun npc voices out of everyone else well that's true but then you also risk metagaming yeah you you know they have insider information of what's happening with this other character that their characters are not around so you risk them slipping up and being all like oh yeah i remember that when they really shouldn't remember that because their character wasn't there even though they are pervy to that information so so to steer the the conversation maybe a little bit um what recent worlds have you encountered that you're like oh man this is so awesome i mean there's a lot of them there is a lot of them <laughs> we just found out that one of them is getting the director's cut excited about that but um there's a lot of them i wouldn't i don't know that they're really rpgs for video games i have sort of moved away from rpg i I never really fell heavy into rpgs like really ff9 really grabbed me and most other rpgs do not (laughs) like that was really the only one that really grabbed me and ironically enough it's the most jrpg jrpg that ever jrpg'd um it it does have a lot of like final fantasy's best hits for mechanics for sure for sure but something just about the world and the story really hooked me um there were a lot of characters i really loved it um so like that was just big um the main character i feel like he was just blank slate enough that you could put kind of whatever cadence behind him you wanted but there was enough to him there to make him cool and interesting and slick and you'd be all like "Ooh, i like this guy um and i feel like there were there were just a lot of really interesting characters i feel like nine is really we got a black mage character who's actually interesting. I mean, Vivi is just awesome. <laughs> yeah, like RPG world for me recently, like new worlds that I've experienced, there's a total conversion mod for Skyrim called Enderall. And that world was really, really well built. Really? Yeah. See, um, like, like that that's kind of what I'm saying. Like Skyrim... Just not my bag. Um, yeah, I can see that. Fallout 4, I played a little bit of it. Not my thing. Um, I actually find, especially in the world of video games, I prefer like RPG lights. Like where you have mild RPG mechanics, but it's not a whole lot of crunch. Because I feel like crunch doesn't translate as well into video games. Because when you're doing tabletop, you're working those numbers yourself. You're yeah. doing and that's part of the fun of it and part of the system is you're doing the math, you're creating the math, you're changing how the math is going to work. 
you're making these algorithms, you're making, okay, how is the system going to work? What's the crunch on it? In video games, that's not really the case. A lot of this is just preset. So you're just kind of stuck with whatever the game throws at you. And most RPGs nowadays, they're all loot-based. So it's like, oh, let's just throw a ton of sticks. And then you feel like you had to constantly be changing to the next greatest, best thing. And I'm kind of a big fan of aesthetics. And I feel like a lot of them do not account for your aesthetic style. It's like you're stuck with whatever they throw at you. Yeah, I definitely have do have that complaint with especially Elder Scrolls games and um, Fallout, so Bethesda as a whole. Absolutely. Because it's like, Absolutely. I'm going to play Fallout 4 again. What is my character going to do? They're going to sneak. They're going to shoot this particular gun because it's really good. And that that is it. Like, they'll wear the armor that's good, not the armor that exactly. looks good. Right. And you're stonewalled. And you can't make what you really... And that's kind of the appeal of RPGs, right? This is your world. You're making it up. You could do whatever you want in it. Also, I feel like dialogue choices in video games are pretty lackluster most of the time. Yeah. I feel like... <clears throat> You know, there's some interesting stuff, and you're all like, oh, I wonder what kind of response I'll get. But it doesn't really affect later on what's going to happen. Like, you could say something super rude to a character. That character's still going to talk to you the next time you walk up to him. You're still going to get dialogue options for them. Your dialogue options may be slightly more aggressive towards them, but they're still going to talk to you. But that's not how the real world works. You're rude to somebody the first time you meet them. They're just not going to talk to you anymore. And you'll just never see that person again. But an RPG is not going to, uh, video games not going to stonewall like that. So they build in opportunities to redeem yourself. But the problem is, is it becomes almost unrealistic. It's like, I could just treat this person like crap and they'll just keep coming back. <laughs> yeah. And, and there's real, there's no stakes. Basically, like I feel like the dialogue options are kind of useless. All you're doing is just getting a funny response from someone, but it doesn't really affect the the game as you go. Yeah, like I think the most a lot of modern RPGs do in that respect are like your your follower dispositions, like, oh, you can piss this person off enough that they'll leave and never talk to you again. Right. And but I feel like, like that's sort not... of realistic, but there's still yeah. not a lot of stakes later on. And it really does take like a lot. Like you really have to try to get this yeah. person to go away. <laughs> but yeah, I could I can really see a lot of those complaints. And I mean, a lot of it's really built into the the limits of video game compared to a tabletop. Absolutely. RPG. Absolutely. I think that's true. And I feel like that's why it doesn't really translate. That's why I prefer like RPG light. Um, Something like uh, I, I'm not, I I believe you haven't probably played this. I don't even know if you own a PS4. Um, Oh, okay. Uh, God of war 2018. Have have you played it? I have not. Okay. I didn't think so. Uh, yeah. But that very much has RPG light elements to it. Um, uh, there's the, there's, the some, boy way, one, there's right? some number games. What? That's the boy one, right? 
Yes, that's that's the boy one. Uh, that's the latest one. Um, it's an amazing game. Highly recommended. Uh, however, it it has some RPG light elements to it. So it's not big number crunchy. It's not uh, crazy leveling. There is a level system. However, the level actually is based on your um, equipment. So like you have armor that and each armor will level up to a point where most of the armors aesthetically you're going to be interested in in our later game armors that look cool and are going to all eventually cap out at the same level. Yeah. So you could you have options. It's just what your play style is. Um so y- you know if you want to throw on an armor that's going to bump you up to level 10 which is essentially the level cap created just because that's as high as you can get mixing and matching armors um and and mixing and matching there's also a runes uh equip runes to armors um and those affect your level as well uh but usually the highest you 10 uh that's with new game plus um but it's it's a very rpg light type of system that isn't based around crunching all the numbers trying to level everything up having this huge crazy skill i mean there's a skill tree but the skill tree works more like how skills in three five worked where you just have skills <laughs> and like you just get some more skills as you went on in the game yeah uh as opposed to it being like a number crunchy system where you have to you know have so much experience to buy skills and stuff like that um there is some of that later in the game like there is an experience system but it's kind of like you could ignore it and still be really good at the game and not end up having a detriment to your gameplay. Um, it's kind of like if you want the game to be a souls like, just don't pay attention to the level system. If you want the game to be a little easier, pay attention to the level system if you want and probably throw some better armors on <laughs> or upgrade your armors. Yeah, I think so. I'm going to talk about at least two or at least one of the two that i have in my head but i don't know if i've ever told you about the game kenshi it sounds familiar i don't know that i know it off the top of my head so it's it's like a post-apocalypse sword punk complete open world there aren't really quests to it like you you define whatever you want to do in the world and you just go do it but you're, That's very much right up my alley. <laughs> you're you're just an average dude starting out. If you want to go pick fights with the guards, good on you, but you're going to get your ass kicked, and they're either going to put you in jail or throw you out of the town. I like that. I, I love the sound of it. <laughs> so, like, the way that they handle the weapons and armor, I mean, because it's sword punk, most of your weapons are swords. You can't really get around that unless you install mods. Um, I mean, it's it's literally... The genre is called sword punk. What yeah. do you expect? <laughs> but uh, if you decide to go the route where you build your own settlement 
and make your own gear, you have different tiers of gear. So you could have the same sword, but five different tiers. And each different weapon set is not inherently just better than the others. They're better at some things. And so I feel like with that customization, it gets you more what you were talking about. I want to build a type of character. I don't want to end up with the same... I chose light armor, so I'm going to end up with this type at the end of the game and this sword because it's real good. <laughs> right. And I actually really like that. Um, yeah. I, I love the sound of this game. Uh, what platforms is it on? Uh, I think it's PC only. Oh, man. I don't have a good gaming PC. <laughs> but, like... For me, just the feel of the world, the the barrenness of most of it, and the the little civilizations that have have peeked out of there with their their crappy kind of like sort of Adobe style houses in most cases, and then some places have like nice built up steel building. It it really sets an interesting not just like open world do whatever you want landscape but also kind of a political landscape as well because there That's are awesome. rival kingdoms and the borders are a little bit fuzzy and they interact that sounds like a great tone like i am very interested in that and i like the fact that you said they interact like yeah like that that's a seller for me. Like when things actually happen in your game and it feels like there's movers and shakers, that's another thing. I feel like the, the political landscape of things, unless it's fully scripted, something's not going to happen or at least like, Oh, you have to get to this point in the game before it triggers. And then it's just happening slightly changes the landscape of the game. But, like, there's no other advancement until maybe the end of the game. Yeah. I mean, in here, there's no story but what you make in the game yourself. And I, I love that because that basically is, um, it's going to do whatever it's going to do. And the world's going to go on in a living, breathing world. And it's going to do its thing, whether you choose to interact with it or not. Um, however you could possibly affect how it moves, how it happens. Yeah. And I like, I, I really like that. Cause I feel like to me that feels more RPG than a crunchy system built into a computer. That's going to do the for me anyway. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think it's too like, uh, too resource intensive playing it. Okay. So um, it's not it's not a super beefy game. It probably wouldn't require a gaming piece. It's big, but like it's not gonna you're not gonna need to buy like a, a super high end graphics card to play it. So so I don't need a thirty ninety? No. <laughs> Are we sure? <laughs> I I am absolutely sure because I forget when the game came out. Um, 
I I just upgraded my all the innards of my computer, except for the graphics card. Yeah, you were telling me that the other day. So, like, I've had this game for a while. I got it starting out in, um, in like early access. It released in 2018 as a full game. I ha- I've had it for longer. Okay. But apparently it's 30% off right now. <laughs> okay. I I would recommend it. It's It's really interesting in that respect. Um I I think the other game that sort of gets around at least the the equipment a little bit um it's more of like a uh sort of harvest moon style RPG, but they're like there is combat and stuff in it. Uh, it's my time at Porsche. I'm not familiar with this one at all. And so, like, instead of farming being the main thing, you're you're a like crafting workshop. But in that sense, like, it still is that that sort of style that um, build Animal up crop. your holdings. Yeah, similar like, to like. Go ahead. I was just gonna say similar to like similar to something like an Animal Crossing. Uh, kind of like, I I would think more like the old Harvest Moons, where you you have to like grow up your farm so you can like buy animals and stuff. In this case, it's more like grow up your workshop so you can build out more machinery so you can craft more stuff. Um, but the way that they handle your your clothing, which is basically your armor, is like you get certain sets that are you know progressively better. But if you really like the look of a set, you can take and modify it in town for like some amount of cost, and they'll upgrade it to what the the best that you've unlocked at the time is. Oh, that's cool. I like that. So for like a little cost in game, you can you can take your like awesome looking set of clothing and upgrade it up to you know the coolest thing that you've unlocked so far that looks stupid. Yes. So I I think if more games did that, like I understand mechanically and realistically, like leather is never going to block the same amount of stuff as a steel plate would. But right. I, if I want my character to have that aesthetic, and it makes me feel more me, I don't want to have to sacrifice getting my ass kicked still. So there are some games that do that, that offer you the ability to just, after a certain point in the game, they will offer you the ability to just aesthetically change any of your inventory to anything else in your inventory. Um, But then you can just design what your character looks like based on any loot you might have that you like, but maybe of a lower level, may not do things that are as interesting. Yeah. So, and, and I usually, I like you too do that kind of thing because then i have 
aesthetically I can make the character what I want as long as I've like found the kind of stuff I like the look of. Um, so I I really wish more games implemented something. Yeah. Idea. Or I mean I guess what you're talking about is kind of verse of that where like you can essentially just stat match the thing you have to another thing you have that looks dumb. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is sort of the reverse of what I'm saying. Let's take something you have and make it look like this other thing you have that you like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that would be like... So an example, one of the outfits are these really stupid-looking shorts in the game. Yeah. So, like... My method is rip the stats out of the shorts and put them in the cool pants that you want. Your method is attach pant legs. Exactly. Well, yeah. my method is is uh, skin the shorts, uh, you know, throw a skin over top of the shorts that look like these other pant legs. Yeah. <laughs> but it's but it's ultimately you end up with the same you end up with the same result, uh, yeah. just two different methods of getting it. Either way, you get the better stats. Uh, but with the aesthetic you prefer. Yeah. So, yeah. Which I feel like in a video game, I mean, just doing a, a, an aesthetic swap, I mean, it's just a, it's just a, uh, artifact coding swap out for the most part. Yeah, I think. Like going back to to Kenshi, I think the thing that it does well is the different gear specialization. It feels more like a tabletop RPG because you're not gonna most of the time. I guess you're probably not gonna put your rogue in full plate mail, even though it's right. the best armor. It's you have choices, and, right. and for me, Kenshi is like the same way. If I want to heavily armor everyone, great. They're not gonna be able to sneak. Right, right, and that's great. That's the point. Like, I yeah. like the idea of risk reward, and I hate to use this term, um, but sort of min max options, like where you can choose what stats to be followed and yeah. choose what stats to ignore. And I hate people who like full on min max. Don't get me wrong. I am. I am not a let's be a tank dude bro um or let's be a zoner dude bro but like i get the idea and i really appreciate the idea of oh if i want to focus on this type of gameplay um i just fill out that stat and i have other options and especially it sounds like you have a lot of aesthetic options with as well and I kind of like that. Yeah. Yeah, I, but, I think, though, the nicer thing, just overall on, on tabletop stuff versus video games, the fact that it's really whatever is in your mind that matters. And when, when you're doing a role-playing game, which is really, I mean, we spent this whole time talking about the various aspects of role-playing games, like you want to fit into that role and make it like 
an extension of yourself almost. And it's much easier to fit in that role if you can really imagine it in your head. And you can really get into those choices, especially gear-wise. But, like, video games limit that choice. And, and that really ultimately is my issue with RPG video games. I feel like there are other things video games can do better. They're really good at creating cool open worlds with awesome visuals. But, yeah. like, why do you need these RPG elements when ultimately you're creating a stifled system anyway? Because originally RPGs were designed, like, the idea of an RPG was designed to give you these options and these choices. And considering video games have to have coding and have be basically pre-generated things, someone can't generate every possible option. Yeah. So it's unrealistic for it to ever capture that true magic. So I guess my point is, is why bother? Why not just, Oh, some of these elements work. So we'll incorporate them here and there. But um, why try to capture the magic of a tabletop game within a video game? I feel like it doesn't work. I feel like you're never going to get there. You're never going to allow someone to do whatever they want, theater your mind style thing, um, with also having some sort of crunchy number system where they can choose a different classification and stuff like that and build all that out, but also have it look however they want. Because I'm going to imagine how something looks and you're never going to make something exactly how I imagine. Um, no one's ever going to guess how I'm thinking of something. So you're going to either lose aesthetics and how the crunch works. You're going to lose in options. You're going to lose in the way things flow. You're, you're sacrificing to put this system into a video game. So I feel like there may just be better options out there instead of trying to full-on, no-stop, emulate an R- a tabletop RPG. And I feel like a lot of games are trying to... I feel like that's why Bethesda falls short. They're out there trying to emulate RPG, especially with Elder Scrolls. Elder Scrolls is a little blatant. Now. Yeah. Um, and and it's just never going to live up to what a tabletop RPG can give you because it's still theater of mind. It's entirely up to your imagination. And there are ways to take that from your imagination and put it out there in the world. You know, go and write books on it. You could go and have uh, artists do renderings. Or if you're an artist, you're uh, what you want the characters to look like like that there's a way to take and train that into and make it a thing but it's still um it's not someone else's thing it's still your and your thing else would so why make a video game that's gonna why not just 
hey, I want to make this cool world with this cool character, and I want you to come play as that. Yeah. And and I feel like in that respect, I I like playing these games more as an interactive book than to try to really get into a character. Like I still I still that's feel really things from the characters. But that's probably good. You no, know, and that's that's kind of the way my wife always does it. And she loves that. That always gets her because my wife, she's not a big gamer. She's not really big, but she is a big reader. And her whole childhood of, um, you know, choose your own ending or choose your own story books where decide what the character's next decision is going to be. You flip the page, you see where the story ends up. And I feel like a lot of these be that for these people. But I feel like some of them try so hard to be that and they fall short because they only give a few options. Look at something like Fable. Right? Fable was very much supposed to be a choose-your-own-ending style of thing. It ended up having, what, essentially two endings with a little bit of flair on a couple of the other endings. (laughs) But for the most part, two endings... I, I remember a lot of people being disappointed, but when I came at it from like just playing it, it's a fun story. Like, right. yeah, you're playing as you, and you get to design out your character, and all of your actions affect how you look and stuff like that. But I mean, at the but end of the day, it's a nice right. book. <laughs> right, exactly. And if you're just looking for a story, um, and and for me, that's that is how I approach a lot of you. I'm like, give me a good And I feel like that's really where a lot of these RPGs fall. And I think that's probably why I liked 9 so much. The story was so great. And I should have liked 7, but I feel like 7 being a little older and there being some things to kind of stifle it gameplay-wise, that's what kind of made it not as engaging to me. And also it had a little more um, graphical hiccups because of the era in which it was produced yeah um than something like nine which was very late in the game of that era when they had essentially mastered the technology and could do phenomenal things with yeah seven was very much what can we get away with what will sort of work and Yeah, it did become its own colossal game because of that. And I think for a lot of people, it's like the first time you've really jumped into that style of game. And it is good. Yeah. Uh, But for a lot of people, it's that first. So it set the bar and they're judging everything against it. Well, I think FF7 Remake is much more um, engaging for me because it it took and modernized a lot of that stuff that was a struggle for me that I'm like, Oh, nine just did this better. (laughs) Nine just simply did this better. And this is clunky and a struggle for me. Whereas in nine, it was smooth and it was beautiful. Um, And a lot in a lot of the cases with seven remake, they just pulled that out or completely rehauled the system entirely. And I'm like, mm, yep, this is better. 
which is fine because it's still like fully modern the game but i feel like yeah it worked better it presented the story in it in probably a more style storytelling way still is very much final game and it still very much feels like ff7 and i think that's why um i do kind of prefer that and to me that's sort of the definitive way to do it even though yes it does change the story and it's not it's not ff7 it's sort of a i wouldn't call it a retelling it's a what happens if the timeline got all fucked up (laughs) Uh, I I haven't played it, but what I've seen of it seems like it's an extension onto a lot of the pieces. And that's that's essentially what it seems like it's meant to be. It's meant to be something happened in this world, and now everything's changing because of it. And this is the story of what's getting changed, how it's getting changed, and then ultimately why it's getting changed. In other words, what happened post some of the stuff we're familiar with, like Advent Children, yeah. for example. And what happens after that that leads to what is currently happening and is there more than likely some time happening here? <laughs> um, but I definitely prefer the refinement in the remake um, to the original. And I think that's kind of what turned me off of it because the story was still there. Um, And some of the cutscenes were phenomenal for the PS1 era. Um, But I still feel like 9 in general just was a more engaging game. Yeah. I also enjoyed 9. Um, but I was playing it when my PS2 was dying, so I definitely didn't get to finish it. (laughs) I totally get that. Um, I don't know that I ever finished the last boss. I know I got to the last boss. I don't know that I ever finished Uh, that. I think I watched a Let's Play of the game. And so it, it cut out a lot of that fun, fun, grindy bits that I, I was happy to not have to suffer through. But yeah, overall, I I do like it as a world. I do like it gameplay-wise. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. Final Fantasy VII did so many things and did them pretty well. It really okay. does set the stage for those later mechanics and and what you can get away with in an rpg i think so um so i think something interesting to end on might be um because we're probably gonna hear soon um might be what are your feelings on modern takes of uh tabletop like the modern landscape of tabletop rpgs for example now that fifth edition has been out for a little while and is starting to actually get some i feel like for all felt very bare um there wasn't a lot out there and they really started fifth edition weird because a lot of it was just um, 
they did um, basically just released a bunch of little like one off uh, episodes for it. And uh, instead of releasing like whole material, um, and I feel like that's just the way they approached it. Um, um, but now that things have kind of filled out and you have uh, more source books and you have more, um, stuff that has grown out of it, how, how do you feel about uh, like the modern landscape of something like fifth edition? So I think with the modern landscape, um, even like with the slow start, there's still so much narratively built mechanically built that you just have to adapt to the new thing that i mean they've done a phenomenal job adapting um and i guess that really is uh ultimately yeah it's, how, how do you how do you like do you like fifth edition i mean obviously clearly think technically they did a good job with it you think they adapted well um and uh, it sounds like you even think they handled the transition pretty well into fifth uh, but how do you feel about this as a system and as, uh, I, I guess, a narrative? But it, I guess with fifth, they're kind of going style where it really is based on what setting do you want this to be in? Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing that, that I would take away from the newer system yeah. is that, like, Mechanically, it's different. They're trying to put more narrative forward, um, and and get your get more of the role play into the game. And on that note, I love that yeah. um, because that's what Exalted does. That's what the storyteller system is, and and that was something I was referring to early on when I. Um, they do that, and I love sort of getting that narrative flair and it affecting mechanics or at least having mechanics built around whatever yeah. narrative you want to give it and along those lines i think that's why i really liked savage worlds and why i tried to run a few things in it because and i enjoyed what you did the same sort of open flexibility too absolutely so yeah i i think as as an introduction to the genre, fifth edition does a lot better than than three or three five because it simplifies a lot of the mechanics for people. I um, do miss that. I do miss that crunch because I felt like there were just so many options. There was yeah. so many way. There, it's like I want to do this crazy thing. Well, there are rules for that, and it's like yeah. fifth kind of goes well just kind of make your own thing for it and just say you did it. And I'm like, I kind of feel like that's hard for someone who like wants to give people that crunch wants to, because when you're sitting at a table, if you're just describing what, and it doesn't really to have any sort of mechanical crunch to it, like you're not gaining any benefit from it or not rolling dice to see if possibly you could epically fail and, and yeah then it's not really playing the game it's just kind of describing cool actions wish someone yeah i i felt sort of 
the a bit the opposite. I felt like three five was so much more defined in that you can play around in the rules. Like I mean, ultimately, when you're a charge, you can decide how you want it to go anyway. Well, this but is true. There's... This is true, but it also requires you to build those mechanics yourself. Yeah. But like so for creating more work on the DM for goofy things, like when we when I would come up with my how drunk are you system. Like, for that it it doesn't super affect the events of the game but it did keep affecting them to some it extent did. it always did if nothing else it gave humorous situations for sure yeah. I I think ultimately like you you will find a system that works well with how you want to play a game. And when you find that and find the group to play with, then, like, that experience will just be great. I, I think 5th edition really adds that a really good option for that. So I'm pretty optimistic about the, the tabletop future. Um... Video game wise, we'll see. There, there are games I like. I'll still get excited about Elder Scrolls and things like that because I, I love the world. But I'm sure I'll find something to be disappointed about. Well, I don't know. Now, now they got that Microsoft, so you might, uh, you might get lucky. Maybe it'll be less buggy. Yeah. Well, not only that. I mean, yeah, you always have maybe. Um, Microsoft will kind of button down the hatches a little and be all like, hey, you got to uh, really, really make this a, a thing. You got to do this well. And you have to incorporate, you know, certain kind of systems and whatnot to make it well. <laughs> As opposed to, you know, you've gotten complacent, Bethesda. Quit half-assing your shit. <laughs> Fair, yeah. You know, I feel like everybody talks about Fallout New Vegas, sort of the uh, godsend. Um, and he here's here's an interesting thing now that you have to consider. Obsidian and Bethesda are now under one roof. Hmm. Obsidian did Fallout New Vegas, if you didn't know that. Obsidian did a lot of really, really well done narrative games through the years. I I always liked when Obsidian was on a game because I knew pieces of it would be really, really good and really engaging. Um, but I'm I'm one of the few people that just I really don't care about the the getting the feel of fallout right mm -hmm. because people really want to harken back to the the early southern california fallout one and two mm -hmm. and like yeah i understand there's a feel associated with this game but at the same time you're in different region 
they've had a different couple hundred years since the bonds. So you're going to get a different experience. If I wanted the Western, I'd stay in the West Coast. (laughs) Right. So I don't know. I I also liked Fallout 3, and I know a lot of people complain about aspects of that. Um, and I do like Fallout 4 most of the time. The Radiant <laughs> Quest system doesn't work well with it. This is true. I I hate getting all of the, the different like chores for the Minutemen. Yeah. But yeah. Um well I uh I enjoyed talking with you. I think uh we got some interesting points on both RPG and world building, and I think um this this has been a pretty productive uh podcast. Yeah. So thank you for joining me. Um and I will see you next time.